open up your chest and you learn how to feel A big, bleeding heart go dump, dump, dump And a big old love, that's how you overcome Life slip, come down, now to keep it real Open up your chest and you learn how to feel A big, bleeding heart go dump, dump, dump And a big old love, that's how you overcome Tick, tick, we wishing Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, you're tuned in to Glory Podcast. I'm your host, Monk. Make sure you go like, share, and subscribe this. Take a picture, share it on your socials to give people an idea of what we're doing here. Share the message, share the wealth. I mean, I ain't doing this to try to blow up and take the world over, but man, these are things I've learned. And like I've said on a bunch of episodes, you know, my goal is to share this with other people. I'm putting the content out there. Like what did my 25 year old self need to hear? What did my 18 year old self need to hear? You know, and then <clears throat> you're older dude and you ain't heard or older chick. We found out we do actually have quite a bit of a female listenership, which is cool. Even though I designed this mostly for dudes. Um, yeah, if you're, if you're older and you haven't heard about some of this stuff too, that that's great. Also, um, something we were talking about on a previous episode, this idea of the curse of knowledge. All right, you have certain knowledge and you just assume other people know the same things. But what could have been a normal everyday thing for me could be some brand new information for you so i forget that and so it's good so y'all let me know also like on the socials you shoot me an email also at, at glowerymusic at gmail.com let me know what y'all want to hear more about also helps me plan episodes or maybe there's something i have no idea about and i need to go look into and then we turn that into something so y'all go do that Again, on the music side, look us up. We're on Apple. It's just Glowry, G-L-A-W-R-Y. On the music side, Apple, Spotify, any type of digital streaming service uh, you use, we're up there. We got a new single coming out on November 1st. It's called Accuser. Um, and, you know, we're, we're kind of building up what we're doing. You know, we got a bunch of tracks actually just sitting in the hopper. We're steadily releasing, working on some new content. And we don't have a date yet, but we're going to put out a mixtape here soon. Probably in the next, I don't know, I'll say the next year or so. So you'll stay on the lookout. But get all those singles, share the music. You know, if the music ain't, ain't your thing, that's okay. But we're trying to do hip-hop. From real hip hop, from a, a Christian or a, you know a positive perspective, without it being corny, that's the whole goal. So, and we've got some good feedback on that. Uh, today's episode, we are getting into um, looking at a book by Sebastian Younger. The book's called Tribe. We're gonna go into some excerpts of that, break down some concepts. You know how we do when we do a book ep- episode. Uh, Sebastian Younger, he, he's you know pretty pretty famous journalist. Um, what blew his name up though was the the book The Perfect Storm, and then there was the movie with George Clooney where they were in that ship getting beat up. Um, <clears throat> he also directed a um, a really really good film. I think it was National Geographic or Discovery picked it up at one point called Restrepo. It was a war documentary. Um, but he does really really good solid work. Um, the book Tribe. It's called Tribe um, on Homecoming and Belonging. And it's basically talking about um, this idea of tribe of the human society interacting like a tribe and how when we don't with the rise of commercialism and individual achievement superseding the good for the collective, how this has potentially led to a lot of the mental illness problems, the epidemic of mental illness we've seen in uh, the rise of modern culture. And then he has a very acute focus on PTSD and soldiers coming home from the war and how this more individualistic society actually exacerbates 
those problems. Um, but we'll just get into some examples. So I'm trying to lay some context. So this book is very interesting because on one hand, it's just a straightforward nonfiction book. But he uses a lot of first-person examples, examples from his own experience as a journalist. And then he tells stories from other people he's interviewing and then weaves in data, science, all of this other stuff. So it's kind of a bit of a hybrid book because it's a lot of storytelling and it's a lot of data, which is awesome. So I'm going to try to give you enough context to really get a feel for what's going on. But like I said, it's a short read. It's like 150 pages and not a lot of, you know, and it's actually, and it's there, they're small pages. You could probably sit down and read this book in an afternoon, but it, it could have been a book. He made a lot longer, but I think with what he left you, there's so much to chew on and so much to think about that if it were any longer, it'd probably just be overwhelming. But like I said, this is a great book. I recommend going out and just reading the whole thing. It's very eye-opening, um, a lot to think about. And it will encourage you to improve in a lot of areas of your life and question what you really value. Um, <clears throat> so let's get into it a little bit here. Okay, so this is from the first section. The book's broken into a few sections uh, this first section is broken up into, or it's called the men and the dogs. All right. So I'm going to read a couple paragraphs here to set the context. Um, in this section, he's talking about the Kalahari desert, which is one of the harshest like environments to survive in, in Africa. And he's focusing on a tribe known as the Kung people. Um, <clears throat> And how they've been able to not only survive there currently, but they've survived in this environment forever as sub basically subsistence farmers and hunters. And they seem some of the happiest people on earth. So uh, we'll talk about it. Um, so now we're in the book. Uh, among anthropologists, the Kung people are thought to present a fairly accurate picture of how our hominid ancestors lived for more than a million years before the advent of agriculture. Genetic adaptations take around 25,000 years to appear in humans, so the enormous changes that came with agriculture in the last 10,000 years have hardly begun to affect our gene pool. Early humans would most likely have lived in nomadic bands of around 50 people, such like the Kong people. They would have experienced high levels of accidental injuries and death. They would have countered domineering behavior by senior males forming coalitions within the group. They would have been utterly intolerant of hoarding or selfishness. They would have occasionally endured episodes of hunger, violence, and hardship. They would have practiced extremely close and involved child care, and they would have done almost everything in the company of others. They would have almost never been alone. So setting the context here, of what their little societies might have looked like. And here, this section, the men and the dogs, um, gets into the sharing of resources. And the thing he's so younger is really honing in on here is this idea of having a massive amount of extra and then hoarding it for yourself in the evolution of human history. Like, we would not be able to survive on the planet if everybody had done that. This is a recent development in modern society. Overall, in human history, this idea of having a bunch of stuff and keeping it for yourself and then being like, it's their fault if they don't get their own um, is a really, really recent development. And not only that, he goes into later in uh, some societies early societies that was considered a mental illness in other societies, they would actually like you would be executed by the tribe if you hoarded stuff for yourself in that way. So <clears throat> getting back to the book first agriculture, then industry changed two fundamental things about the human experience. Sorry. Let me turn that update off my phone real quick. I apologize. So back to the book. The accumulation of personal property allowed people to make more and more individualistic choices about their lives. And those choices 
unavoidably diminished group efforts toward a common good. And as society modernized, people found themselves able to live independently from any communal group. A person living in a modern city or suburb can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or an entire life, mostly encountering complete strangers. They can be surrounded by others and yet feel deeply and dangerously alone. <clears throat> All right. So because of the changes in agricultural agriculture and industry, right, and the way life has modernized itself, you can live basically a completely solitary existence is what he's saying there. All right, so back to the book. The evidence that this is hard on us is overwhelming. Although happiness is notoriously subjective and difficult to measure, mental illness is not. Numerous cross-cultural studies have shown that modern society, despite its nearly miraculous advances in medicine, science, and technology, is afflicted with some of the highest rates of depression, schizophrenia, poor health, anxiety, chronic loneliness, in human history as affluence that means being really rich affluence and urbanization rise in a society rates of depression and suicide tend to go up rather than down rather than buffering people from clinical depression increased wealth in a society seems to foster it and it's because that increased affluence um, with a focus on materialism, you end up isolating yourself through your wealth rather than being at something you bring to the community. I mean, this is something why, you know, I look at my own life, uh, high school and college athlete, right? You're always in this communal space. And then when that part of my life was done, you know, I dealt with loneliness hardcore that loneliness led me to a problem with alcohol and substance abuse thankfully i was able to get in a community and get around people and then you know get grounded in my spirituality help me overcome that but it's saying okay as our um as our physical needs are more easily met more easily taken care of it seems according to this right our mental health, our physical health, and all this other stuff tend to be getting worse. And Younger's argument here is, you know, it's because we're not living communally in a way where, like we're actually designed to be. I mean, you look at Jesus and the apostles, that's basically what he did. He gathered a bunch of people, they traveled around, they shared everything, and everybody was happy. All right. Or happy, so to speak, like he mentions here in the book. Happiness is very subjective, but the rise and all these other problems, mental health, um, poor health, poor physical health, all of that keeps going up and up and up. All right. So we're back to the book here. <clears throat> Suicide is difficult to study among unacculturated tribal peoples. Because the early explorers who first encountered them rarely conducted rig rigorous ethnographic research, obviously. That said, there is a remarkably little evidence of depression-based suicide in tribal societies. Among the American Indians, for example, suicide was understood to apply in very narrow circumstances in old age to avoid burdening the tribe in the ritual paroxysms of grief following the death of a spouse in a hopeless but heroic battle with an enemy and in an attempt to avoid the agony of torture. Among small tribes that were ravaged by smallpox, it was also understood that a person whose face had been hideously disfigured by lesions might kill themselves. According to the Ethics of Suicide Historical Sources, early chroniclers of the American Indians couldn't find any other examples of suicide that were rooted in psychological causes. Early sources report the Belacula, the Ojibwa, and the Montagonize, the um, Arapaho, and the Plato Yuma, the Southern Paiute, and the Zuni, among others, experienced no suicide at all. So just looking at our early tribal ancestors, for those of you that got to have native blood like me, or our early, um, early tribal cultures in America... Right, there wasn't su suicide. Like, was not a thing. 
and he says even even here suicide was more of a practical thing okay you're living in a small group you got a deadly illness then people would commit suicide so they wouldn't spread it to the rest of the tribe and then also in battle if an enemy is about to get you and torture you they would do they would commit suicide for sake of not having to undergo the torture or maybe um share secrets that they don't need to and then also some of the grief of losing a spouse but other than that suicide wasn't a thing that was experienced in most tribes so you have to it it begs the question then why is suicide the suicide rate among people among the youth in a modern culture where our physical needs like literally just our lives in that the sense of having our physical needs met on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, why is the suicide rate going up and why is it becoming an epidemic? If things are better, if things are truly better, why do the suicide rates keep going up when things were inevitably harder, you know, a couple hundred years ago on, on this planet, on, in the country, in these tribal societies where su- suicide like wasn't a thing. Why is that? So this is the question we're asking. Now, I'm back in the book. This stands in stark contrast to many modern societies where the suicide rate is as high as 25 cases per 100,000 people. In the United States, white middle-aged men currently have the highest rate at nearly 30 suicides per 100,000. According to a global survey by the World Health Organization, people in wealthy countries suffer depression at as much as eight times the rate they do in poor countries and people in countries with large income disparities like the United States run a much higher lifelong risk of developing severe mood disorders. A 2006 study comparing depression rates in Nigeria to depression rates in North America found that across the board, women in rural areas were less likely to get depressed than their urban counterparts. And urban North American women the most affluent demographic of the study were the most likely to experience depression. The mechanism seems simple. Poor people are forced to share their time and their resources more than wealthy people are, and as a result, they live in closer communities. All right, so breaking that down a little bit, so the idea here is, at least what the data shows, is if you live in a wealthier society, especially in an urban situation, you're wealthy and you're in suburbia or you're in more of a, um, an urban environment, it seems that because you, um, you're able to isolate yourself, you're insulated from the rest of the world due to your wealth and your access to resources, that actually the rates of depression and suicide go up, which is interesting. They said it's less in the um, rural communities, according to studies. And, you know, my personal opinion on that would be, well, in rural communities, what there's, where, where there's less people, you have to interact with your people. Also, resources are harder to come by, so you're just talking to people and interacting with people in a way where you're kind of almost forced to because you're not as insulated. And then the third reason being you're outdoors more. Um, You're not in these artificial environments. Uh, Being in these artificial environments all day is bad for your physical and mental health. Right. But according to the studies, it seems like poor people actually do not suffer from depression and suicide as much as the wealthy, according to this, um, which is interesting. But my caveat would be: like, if you have all your needs met and you don't have a battle or any resistance to fight, and you're disconnected from other people, right? That's that's depressing, right? At least in a poor community, right? Y'all are all working together because you're kind of all in the same place, and you all kind of see each other and feel each other, but um. Back to the book here, Um, Younger breaks this down. Interreliant poverty comes with its own stresses, but certainly isn't the American ideal. 
but it's much closer to our evolutionary heritage than affluence. So he's saying, right, yeah, it's not the American ideal to be poor, but um, based upon um, human kind of human evolution and how we de- we've developed as societies, living in a close knit community where you're dealing with poverty is actually a lot closer to how we evolved in tri- small tribes, and it's a reason why there might not be as much depression, suicide, and those type of things. So back in the book, a wealthy person who has never had to rely on help and resources from his community is leading a privileged life that falls way outside more than a million a million years of human experience. Financial independence can also lead to isolation, and isolation can put people at a, gre- a greatly increased risk of depression and suicide. This might be a fair trade for a generally wealthier society, but a trade it is. All right, so <clears throat> basically, right, that money, that wealth can isolate you from people or isolate you from the rest of your community to the point that you cannot identify with the people in your community. And that isolation, if you don't have some type of community around you, leads to the suicide, the depression, and it also leads to like, well, we mean affluence, having a lot of stuff. That, that stuff doesn't mean anything. That money doesn't mean anything if you don't have the relationships or the people around you to share it. Okay. So, it's just something to think about. Like, we are not as people, right? Your life's purpose is not to go out and get a job and make a bunch of money so you can have a bunch of stuff. And I've ranted about this on other podcasts, but this is the mechanism that comes out of our public school system. And I'm a, I work in the public school system. Not calling any one organization out or not. This is just, this is what I was taught coming through the public school system. And this is the thing you hear echoed. And it's not necessarily taught word for word like this, but this is, this is what gets into the psyche of the kids coming out of the system for the most part. And it's this idea of, I got to get good grades in school so I can get into a good college. I have to get into a good college so I can get a good job. I got to get a good job so I can have lots of stuff and not have to experience hardship. All right. So first of all, that not experiencing hardship part, get that out of your paradigm. Just like Younger saying here in the book, your money, that money doesn't protect you or insulate you from hardship. All right. <clears throat> we saw that with Corona when when the coronavirus hit. A lot of people who had never spe- experienced anything hard and were isolated due to their wealth. Now, boom, jobs are gone. Boom, money's gone. And, you, and because you were isolated from your wealth, you did not have community around you or people around you you could fall upon or and maybe it was the first time in your life where you needed help and you had to depend upon other people. You had to swallow your pride and get humbled. And again, dude, and then you had the isolation effect of the quarantine. And this is why depression, suicide, anxiety, and all these other mental health issues not only have been steadily increasing, but once Corona hit, right, we're, we're at the threshold now. So, I mean, that's the first thing. If you're thinking that's going to insulate you from hardship, you are wrong. What insulates you, nothing insulates you from hardship, but having people around you that have your back and you have their back and you are having real vulnerable relationships with each other, that helps when the hard times come. All right. And then I would add to that, having a spiritual practice having a reliance on God knowing who God is and having that trust also helps actually that'll be the only thing that really can get you through it but it will bring the community and it will bring all the other things you need to go through the hard time all right <clears throat> the second my second problem with this kind of underlying motive what comes out of public schools is it's all economy based it's all 
based at materialism. Again, all right, I got to get good grades. Right, the idea grade grades don't matter that much. To be honest, let's let's just talk about it. They can keep you um, eligible if you're if you're participating in um, extracurricular activities. But I mean, I was like this in school too. I can make I could pull an A in a class and not learn anything. Just you do the you do the work, you turn it in. It goes in one ear and out the other. I didn't really learn anything, but I checked off all the boxes. I crossed my T's and I dotted my I's. That's basically what grades are for the most part. And there is skill when you're teaching youth about how to get stuff done, how to keep your house in order, even if it's you're having to do things you don't necessarily want to do or enjoy doing. Because that's part of life. There's a life skill in that. But grades in and of themselves, they don't really mean anything. Have nothing to do with how smart or how dumb you are. Um, have nothing to do with your, your capacity. A lot of times it's just measuring whether you're, you're lazy or not. Okay, but right, good grades. have to be, get good grades, be involved in all these extracurricular activities so I can get into a good college. And get into a good college basically means, oh, I get accepted. Now I got to pay thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year to get a degree. Where when I get out, I'm going to make forty, forty, fifty, or sixty thousand dollars. But I'm paying back two to three hundred thousand dollars. Anywho, get the degree so you can get the big money job. Why do you want the big money job? So you can have a nice, comfortable life with a bunch. Of stuff. Right. That's the paradigm. And I ask I ask my students this every year to write about it. And that is not, you know, I've been doing this for a while now. And 95% of the responses I get when I ask this question and they write about it is that response. Get good grades so I can get a good job. So I can get into it or get good grades so I can get into a good college so I can get a good job. So I can just have a life and, you know, have a big house, have a nice car, you know, like there's nothing wrong with wanting those things. But why is that the 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 supreme desire or the supreme goal? Because all the studies show like that's your goal, that's your motive, that's what you're going towards. It ends up leading us to suicide and depression. So, again, there's nothing wrong with those things. It's not what I'm saying. Uh, my point is that our focus, and it somehow it's worked its way, it's like a virus, it's worked its way into the youth from an early age, that our focus becomes on getting stuff, not having rich relationships, not being involved in some type of work that leads to happiness or promotes the welfare of other people. It's about getting stuff. It's about getting stuff. Stuff is not going to make you happy, people. And if you're a youngster listening to this, um, have your goal and that's great, but understand, please, having a huge house is not going to make you happy. Having a baller car is not going to make you happy. Having a hot wife or having a hot husband, that's not going to make you happy internally. Okay. It's just not. Some of y'all hearing the sound of my, you won't understand it till you're there, but you need to Focus on having rich relationships with other people. You need to focus on building up your spiritual strength and your spiritual discipline, knowing who you are and doing something that's going to allow you to make the world not all about you, not make everything you do all about you. Because that's what a lot of this comes from, especially with the epidemic of male suicides. Is the men have made their purpose in life attached to their ability to earn or not, and then it becomes all about them. Me, 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 me. And then when that falls, it's not only them losing right the things, the materials, it's they've lost their self because they've um, attached their identity to the stuff or to the ability to provide and get the stuff. All right, so Younger wraps up this section here, and let's see what he has to say. The psychological effect, we're back in the book, 
of placing such importance on affluence can be seen in microcosm in the legal profession. In 2015, George Washington Law Review surveyed more than 6,000 lawyers and found that conventional successes in the legal profession, such as high billable hours or making partner at a law firm, had zero correlation with levels of happiness and well-being reported by lawyers themselves. In fact, public defenders who have far lower status than corporate lawyers seem to lead significantly happier lives. The findings are in keeping with something called self-determination theory, which holds human beings need three basic things in order to be content. One, they need to feel competent at what they do. Two, they need to feel authentic in their lives. And three, they need to feel connected to others. These values are considered intrinsic to human happiness and far outweigh extrinsic values such as money, beauty, and status. And so basically, right, big money, you know, analyzing big money. I want to be a big money lawyer, right? And so this idea of being a big money lawyer, well, if you look at what a lawyer actually does and being a big money lawyer, they interviewed all these people at all these different law firms, 6,000 law firms, right, in this study. And what they found is the high achievers, the ones that, had basically the most extrinsic value, right? Having these super high amount of billable hours, moving up the ladder at your job. It seemed to be that in the legal profession, at least, that the people that had climbed the highest up the ladder and made the most money so they could get the most stuff were the least happy. And the people that were public defenders, um, <clears throat> meaning that's that's low level, that's like, you know, you go to, you go to your local court and there's a there's a trial lawyer there. He's not getting paid a whole lot. He's getting paid a decent amount of money, I'll be honest. But compared to what this guy at this super huge firm might be getting paid, it's not a whole lot. But those public defenders reported more happiness for several reasons. Well, the, the big reason would be simply because they've got that connection to others when they are there doing their work because they're doing work in the community that wealth or their job does not separate them from the people around them you know so it's something to think about and i will i will echo this to this self-determination theory right about what you need in order to be content <clears throat> as you age right feeling competent at what you do and I just say this, at working with the youth, this is something boys need, especially <clears throat> working with young men. That's, again, one of the reasons why I stress get involved in some type of athletic pursuit or physical pursuit. Join a team, join a club, whatever, because in being a part of that team, that club, as a youngster, You'll build confident competence. You might not be the next Michael Jordan. You might not be, you know, end up becoming a major league baseball player, but you develop a degree of competence by being a part of that team and learning how to play your sport or learning how to do whatever it is, what part of club you're a part of. All right. That's why that's important. And the longer I do this in my day job, it seems like boys less and less are coming out. And again, this goes with the rise of fatherless households, which I talked about in a previous episode. They don't have fathers in the home. They don't have fathers showing them teaching, showing them things or teaching them things, teaching them skills that allow them to feel confident. So skills valuable because that skill you can then trade to go out into the world and make money and provide for yourself and provide for your family. But the reason why skill is so important though, otherwise might be more important than even the first reason is <clears throat> that is the thing that allows you to feel confident and, and worthy because now I have confidence that, hey, regardless of what's going on that day, I can go out and I'm good at this skill. I can do this thing. It doesn't matter what I, it doesn't matter how bad I feel, doesn't matter what happened in my life. I have some confidence there because I know how to do this thing. 
And a lot of these young men coming up now, being raised out of fatherless households, or being raised as, raised as latchkey kids, they're not competent at anything because we sheltered them from so much and just throw stuff and stuff and stuff at them. And it breaks my heart, man. All right. Feeling competent at what you do. And that second need was you need to feel authentic in your life. So now you feel competent in a skill that you have. All right. Are you allowed to be yourself in that skill? That's something that's huge, too. We talked about that. I talked about this on the last episode, actually, um, in terms of, you know, if you're a single dude, at least, and you have that job, but you feel like you're selling your integrity out for it, or it's just become about getting stuff and getting stuff and getting stuff. Well, maybe it's that time where you spend two or three years building up that bank account and using that to leverage you finding something else to do that's going to allow you to feel more authentic in your life. I mean, for me, that was the case. I had some opportunities to work in some other fields and make a lot more money than I do now. Yet the job that I currently have, the space that I currently fill, and the role that I currently fill, it's basically like it, it allows me to be exactly who I am. I don't have to pull any punches. I don't have to be fake about anything. I get to be who I am. I get to do what I do, and I'm good at it. At least I think I'm good at it. Um, and it's a blessing because when you lay your head to go down to sleep at night, I don't have to question, bro, did what I do today make a difference? Bro, did I have to sell my integrity out? Did I have to sell myself out in order for the job or the paycheck? I don't ever have to ask that question. And that's a huge, huge, huge blessing. And then the third one, you need to feel connected to others. Again, my job allows me to do that. I'm in the community all day. All right. And so... If you're, you don't have a job, if you have a job that isolates you from community, you got to find a way to get involved in community. This is why churches are such a big deal. All right. Obviously, you got to have a spiritual practice. You got to believe in something higher than yourself. If you don't, that's okay. The fact that you're hearing my voice is probably going to lead you to that at some point. All right. God's whispering to you. God's trying to get you and whatever through, through all Events in your environment, God's trying to talk to you. And if your ears are shut, God's just going to keep whispering and chipping away at you. And it's going to be that annoying voice or those annoying circumstances till finally you wake up. But this is why churches are such a big deal in a lot of communities, because this might be the one place where people go and they're involved in the community and they feel connected to other people. Right. And that would be my caution to churches, though. If you're becoming a source of division, if you're not allowing people to connect, become more connected and communal. This is also why people are leaving churches right now, for example. So um, that's just a caution, caution to churches, man. Like, get involved in your community. If you're not serving in your community and the people... If you're not meeting needs and the people that you've been given, you need to start doing that or it become it ends up becoming this weird cult like thing um, that bad stuff comes out of it. So. I like what he said there through those three points, because that gives you a different focus. And I think those are the things we should be focused on because they create the intrinsic values that were naturally hardwired to um, flourish under. All right. So where are we at time wise? All right. I'm going to do one more little section and then we'll call it. All right. Uh, This is a little heavy, but. We'll get into this last point and wrap her up. So one of the reasons I was attracted, so I got a master's degree in English. Um, One of the reasons I was attracted to this, though, um, I think initially I wanted to be a philosophy guy. But philosophy, there is so much 
you just got into a lot more hard science and it was less about story. And then I was really into sociology. I thought I wanted that to be my major at one point. And <clears throat> then I ended up settling, I actually started college as a business major, but I just was bored with it. Got really bored with it. And then I was just like, bro, if I want to be a business major, why don't I just go try to start a business? I could learn more from doing that than reading about it in a book or work for somebody who started a business and then try to start my own, you know. But it's amazing. Yeah, because the the world wants you to go get an MBA and pay, you know, $800,000 to get it, which is all right, whatever. But I got into the English because I was like, well, in reading English, Right. It's, we're mastering the communication of the language in which we do commerce and the language in which I'm communicating with the people in my community. That was the first thing. Second thing was with English, you're getting to read philosophy. You're getting to read all this other stuff. You're getting to read sociology. But main thing is you're looking for patterns, archetypes, um, symbol, common symbolism in stories that people are telling over and over again. So one of these common stories that's told in every culture you go to, even all goes all the way back to Cain and Abel in the Bible, whether you believe that literally or you believe it's just a collection of stories, it doesn't matter because there's truth in the stories, right? So you have Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, right? When Cain kills Abel, he kills his brother, and that basically is like he preys upon the member of his community to protect himself, right? We see versions of this story told in different cultures throughout different times um, of the world. Almost every tribe, every culture, anywhere you go around the world has some version of this type of story, right? It's where legends of werewolves come from. It's where, say, if you are familiar with Beowulf, we have Beowulf and Grendel. Grendel's outcast of the communal society. He lives in isolation. And then it's so because of that isolation and the pain of isolation does not see himself in the other people. So now he goes back to the society he has been kicked out of and not been allowed to be a part of. And he kills murders and rampages against all of the people in that community terrorizing them. And ironically in Beowulf, he does so in their meeting hall, their grand hall where they meet and have all their meetings and throw all their parties. And it's the community center of that um, group of people. Right. That's another version of that story. Um, The native Americans have, these myths about people called skinwalkers, similar deal, or you might be familiar with the Wendigo myth is another version of this. Um, and this is what Younger here in this last section is talking about. He makes connections from those archetypal stories and kind of the system of symbolism and what they represent and how we can translate that into some of the modern day problems we see. So here we go. We're back in the book. Virtually every culture in the world has its version of the skinwalker myth. In Europe, for example, they're called werewolves, literally man man wolf in old English. The myth addresses a fundamental fear in human society that you can defend against external enemies, but still remain vulnerable to one lone madman in your midst. Anglo-American culture doesn't recognize a skinwalker threat, but has its own version. Starting in the early 1980s, the frequency of rampage shootings in the United States began to rise more and more rapidly until it doubled around 2006. Rampages are usually defined as attacks where people are randomly targeted and four or more are killed in one place, usually shot to death by a lone gunman. As such, these crimes conform almost exactly to the kind of threat that the Navajo seem to most fear on the reservation. Murder and mayhem committed by an individual who has rejected all social bonds and attacks people at their most vulnerable and unprepared. 
For modern society, that would mean not in their log Hogan's, but in movie theaters, schools, shopping malls, places of worship, or simply walking down the street. All right. So these rampage shootings, they get glorified in the media. This is the modern day skinwalker. This is the modern day Cain and Abel. This is the modern day Beowulf and Grendel. Right. It's reporting to the place of community where people are vulnerable and going and taking those people out. And this is the result of materialism and isolation. And the reason these rampage shootings are happening at such a high level, you can say mental illness is a problem. You can say these people were on drugs. You can people say these people are madmen. Yes, but why are they madmen? Because their connection to other people has been removed. They no longer see themselves as part of the community, part of the collective. And the only way they can discharge and displace that pain is by going back into the collective and hurting people. Because that is the only way they can feel seen, y'all. So I don't think you realize how much just a kind word to somebody that looks like they're having a hard day or chronically look like they're having a hard day. That could be the thing that pulls somebody who's contemplating some of those terrible deeds, pulls them back into the community. Now they see themselves as one, as part of the whole. Right. So we're back in the book. Seen in that light, it's revealing to look at the kinds of communities where those crimes usually occur. A rampage shooting has never happened in an urban ghetto. <clears throat> For example, indiscriminate attacks at schools almost always occur in otherwise safe, predominantly white towns. Around half of rampage killings happen in affluent or upper-middle-class upper communities, and the rest tend to happen in rural towns that are majority white, Christian, and low-crime. Nearly 600 people have been killed by rampage shooters since the 1980s. Almost by definition, rampage killers are deeply disturbed sociopaths. But just begs the question, why sociopaths in high-crime urban neighborhoods don't turn their guns on other people the way they do in more affluent communities? Like I said, in the urban communities and poor urban communities, right, there, there are other problems that go on. There are shootings, a lot of gang-related, business-related, and that's another thing those are another type of killings, but those aren't rampage killings. All right, so, and he gets into this in the next section. Gang shootings, as indiscriminate as they often are, still don't have the nihilistic intent of rampages. Rather, they're rooted in an exceedingly strong sense of group loyalty and revenge, and bystanders sometimes get killed in the process. The first time that the United States suffered a wave of rampage shootings was during the 1930s when society had been severely stressed and fractured by the Great Depression. Profoundly disturbed, violent individuals might not have felt inhibited by these social bonds that restrained previous generations of potential killers. Rampage killings dropped significantly during World War II, then rose again in the 1980s and have been rising ever since. It may be worth considering whether middle-class American life, for all of its material good fortune, has lost some essential sense of unity that might otherwise discourage alienated men from turning apocalyptically violent. So, point being here, it's that materialism and that isolation bred from the materialism that could be causing the rise of what we call rampage killings here. <clears throat> As he said, like in gang-related shootings or these other crime-related shootings, there is collateral damage, but a lot of the gang-related stuff, it's people fighting over tur turf. And I'm not justifying that, and I'm not saying that is good. But there is a communal aspect to that, right? Like if someone walked up into my house and started shooting <clears throat> and then left, right, because of my connection to my wife and my family, <laughs> You know, I very well might try to find that person who committed that and hunt them down because of my loyalty in trying to protect my family. Okay, that's a similar deal with like a gang-related shooting. These rampage shootings have these random individuals that aren't connected to anybody or anything, and they're going in and 
shooting innocent people or as a gang related shooting it's no you're you're attacking an enemy now we could get into reasons why your enemies that's another conversation and again i'm not justifying that cuz that lifestyle that's a that's a terrible lifestyle that's another scourge but the point being made here is that in the wealthier communities where these rampage shootings are happening and have been on the rise <clears throat> It's these material well-off communities that breed the isolation because the focus has been on material and having stuff. Whereas even in the more poverty-ridden communities, y'all are all in the struggle together. Everybody's poor. Y'all are sharing resources. Um, and because of that, you're in connection with people. Right? Y'all are this burden of shared hardship connects y'all. And so that's... What basically what he's saying, hey, these rampage shootings don't happen in these poor communities. Interestingly enough. So that's a little excerpt there, or a few excerpts from Tribe by Sebastian Younger, but it's just the point being here, man. We gotta get our heads right, we gotta get our hearts right, you know, chasing after the material that's not gonna make us happy. Right? People and especially the young men, you got to develop a skill, find a skill to develop, develop it so you feel competent in what you do. And then put yourself in a place where through your competence, through your display of skill, you're able to earn and go about it in a way where you're in your integrity. Right. And in order to be in your integrity, you have to sit with God, sit in silence and know what you stand for who you are, and how you're supposed to proceed. And then in that, with your skill and in your integrity, you can earn for you, that's fine. But that's that old saying, you don't get, you don't get it unless you give it away. You want more of something, give, give away what you have. You want more grace, give away grace. You want more peace, start giving peace to people. You want more money, give some money to people. You want more time, give a little bit of your time to people. It's a spiritual principle. If you want more of something, but you don't give away what you have, you don't teach it to other people what you already have, even the thing that you have will be taken from you because you are closing the dam, closing the flow of water that allows that thing to become present in your life. So give away a little bit of what you have and more will come to you and more will come to you, etc. Ad infinitum, there's the phrase. So again, you like what you're hearing. Go like, share, and subscribe. Get, us, get at us on social. Do you want to be a guest? Also guest, man, you got to be 18 or over to come on this podcast. If you want to be a guest, get at me. We got some good guest episodes coming up soon. Y'all stay put. Also, let us know subjects, topics you want to hear more about. But as always, peace and blessings to you from the Most High. It's your boy Monk, out.